Amen, and praise be to God. And, and if you will, right now, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. And if you do not have a Bible with you today, you're in good shape. There's a Bible should be right in front of you. Uh, you pick up that pew Bible, and you may turn in your Bible to page 1003 and join us in Hebrews chapter 6. And if you'd like, you can take that Bible home with you and use it that you may know and grow more in Christ. And uh, so Hebrews chapter 6, we'll be reading 12 verses today. We look at 1 through 12. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that your word encourages us to continue to press on to maturity. We thank you for the basic principles, the elementary principles of which we read here in this passage, which we stand upon, which are good, but that through your grace and as you permit, we are able to continue to grow. God, thank you for our salvation. Thank you for being the overseer, the author, the sustainer of our salvation in all things. God, we trust fully in you and we ask that today as your word goes forth that it would not return void, that hearts would receive your word today, that it would be like we've read in this passage, good soil to produce fruit. I pray for those in this room that do not know you. They're separated due to their sin. They're living in darkness and not light. Father, we know that this is a position that all of us find ourselves in due to being born into sin. But there is hope in Jesus Christ, and we ask that today that would be clearly seen by those who do not know you that you would draw them to yourself, that there would be a true repentance, a true faith, turning away from what is old and embracing what is new in Christ Jesus. So, Father, we ask that you do this mighty work, that we would be strengthened. So we look at a very difficult passage today, Father, one that has been widely abused, manipulated. Father, may we with integrity study your word and gain the fullness of your word. May we not be in error, but may we stand in truth. We ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you may have a seat. 
Press on to maturity. That's what we're looking at today and will be over the next three weeks. And so this is just part one. If you want to label that, I will ask you today that um, if you're taking notes, be ready. Take good, copious notes, all right? If you're not normally a note taker, break out anything you can to jot down some notes, some verses, because we have just entered into a very difficult passage, one in which causes a lot of confusion, a lot of debates, and I want us to be very clear that when we stand upon Scripture, we know what is true, and that we look to God for our salvation, for the sustaining of our salvation, for the completion of our salvation, now and throughout all of eternity. God is good, amen? And today we will just see how good God is. But there's an encouragement for us that we are not to be lazy, that we are not to be sluggish. Now, in hearing this, we have to be careful that we don't run too far and say that if we are lazy, if we are sluggish, that we can fall from grace, that we can lose what God has gifted to us, that being salvation. And so, I want to be clear today that while I'm asking you to take notes, I know from having many conversations with you, part of Perimeter Road Baptist Church, that you have friends, you have family that you discuss this passage with, and it creates a lot of conflict, a lot of confusion, but it all does come together, and we're going to see that today. And so follow with me as we look here on pressing onto maturity. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to a maturity. I want you to understand that this is a very positive passage, a very encouraging passage for those who love Jesus. This is not a passage that should scare you and push you away from Christ. It should encourage you and cause you to draw near unto Christ. And notice this, that the writer includes himself when he says, let us move on. So whether there were more than one writer writing this to the Hebrews, or whether just one writer, we do not know. But we do know that the author or authors, and ultimately the true author, the Holy Spirit, but the human authors including himself in this encouragement, which means we Two are included in this. All of us must hear and hear continually, press on to maturity. And so all born-again believers are to grow. Kent Hughes says this, and before I say this quote, I attribute much to Kent Hughes and A.W. Pink and Warren Wiersbe. did a lot of study through their commentaries this week to help add into what we're looking at. Yes, I hold fully to the Word of God. This has been a great help by scholars who have studied in depth this word as well. Kent Hughes says this, where there is life, there is growth. And this makes sense for us. Where there is life, there is growth. Now, how many of you have houseplants? Raise your hand. Let me see. Okay. How many of you are good at keeping houseplants alive? Raise your hand. All right. Because I need to come see you. All right. So we have houseplants. Somebody may give you a plant as a gift and you're grateful. 
You're thankful for that house plant. And you say, I'm going to take care of this plant. And then within a week, you notice that something's happening. The, the leaves are starting to wilt. It's starting to turn a little brown. It's not as green as it once was. And you go, something's wrong. Oh, yeah, that's right. I haven't been taking care of this plant. I haven't been watering this plant. And what the plant is showing us, which is natural, is to say, I'm dying. And because I'm dying, you can see the effects of my death. My leaves are wilting. And so some of you say, I'm done with the real plants. I'm going to get me some nice plastic plants. You got some good plastic plants. And, and that's good because they look good until somebody touches them and realizes they're plastic, right? But, you know, we have plastic plants at our house. Uh, and real ones too. But the point being is this. In this passage, you have those that look like they're real. But then, as you see their life, the leaves begin to wilt and then eventually die. And then you have those that seem to be in a state where they're not really growing. We looked at that last week. So something's wrong. Something's wrong if there's no growth. And so he's saying, here are the basic elementary principles that you have learned, and we're going to look at those just briefly today. And you are to firmly believe these things and grow. But we see, and I firmly believe this as we have seen in Hebrews, that there are those among the church that are wilting and falling away. And the writer is saying, make sure that this is not you. Make sure it's not you. Move on from the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. And so as we move further, I think it's important first for us to look at the elementary doctrines that he's talking about. There's six of them. And we see with these elementary principles, is there something wrong with them? Is there a problem that they're holding to these elementary principles? No. There's not a problem with the elementary principles. There is a problem with the one that fails to move on from the elementary principles. The elementary principles are good. They're foundational. The problem is the one that doesn't grow from there, that just is hanging out there for some reason. And that's what's being addressed here. What's being noticed upon first century Christians, they're not growing in Christ. That's why he's writing this letter. You've got to persevere. You've got to keep going. You can't stop right here at the basic principles. And you may say, why? why? Why can't we just keep it simple? Why go deeper? Don't we get ourselves in trouble when we go deeper in Scripture? Because going deeper, growing in the fullness of Christ is not an option for the believer. It's not an option. It is a command. And that's important for us, Perimeter Road Baptist Church, to know. That for first century, it was not an option. And for us today, 21st century, it's not an option. We must grow in the Scripture. You say, well, man, I know the ABCs of the faith, man. I'm good. Let's just say that God is good. He loves people. Jesus is a Savior. Can't we just keep it at that? But there is a danger at just holding to basic principles and not growing in maturity of Christ. One, it could be direct evidence that you may not be a follower of Jesus. And that's harsh, but that's what the writer is saying. He's saying, make sure that this is not you. 
those failing to move forward are either one, lazy, and need to start eating. That's what we looked at last week. Let's not be lazy in the word. Embrace the word of God. Start eating. It's not enough for the testimony of somebody who says, well, I love Jesus. I love praying. I love telling people about Jesus, but I'm just not that strong in the word. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. And the reason I say that is dangerous because then you begin to mold and to shape what the gospel is when God's word tells us fully what is the gospel. So it may be that we're lazy. We say we don't need the Bible. We know enough. I've, I've learned enough growing up. I, can, I don't need to keep studying. And you say, I, w- I don't believe that. Maybe you wouldn't say you believe it, but as we looked at last week, maybe it's your actions that are showing this. Your actions are showing that you're not eating. Or number two, it's failing to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the true righteousness. And I believe in this passage, that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the writer address them and say, either it could be that you're lazy and you need to grow, or it could be that the reason you're hanging out in these elementary principles is because you do not believe that Jesus is the one true righteousness. You're still hung up on Judaism. You're hung up in your old life. And it's easy for them. They could have slid back because many of the practices were similar from where they came. And he's calling them out. And he's saying either Jesus is the one true righteousness or he's not. You've got to grow in Christ or you're not in Christ. So the reality that fills the shadow of the Messiah had come. It's Jesus. And the devastation is that there are some that are not willing to leave the shadows for the reality being Christ. The shadows the Old Covenant, the reality of the New Covenant. So 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. No other foundation to build our lives on but Jesus. And you're saying, hey, I'm with you. Amen, I'm there. Are you growing in this? Are you growing in this? So we see the shadows fulfilled by Christ with the basic principles, the elementary doctrine here. And what I want to do, I don't want to bore you. Last thing I want to do is bore you today. Okay, I'm glad that you're here. I want you to pay extra attention as we look at these doctrines that are addressed in Scripture, because this is vitally important that you understand verses 1 and 2, and then what verse 3 says before we get to 4 through 6 today. Okay, and so I'm going to throw out some big words it may make your head spin for a second. I'm not trying to wow you. There are words that are used to explain something. Soteriology, pneumatology, and eschatology. These three ologies are discussed here in Scripture. So some of you are saying, man, I only know biology. What are you talking about? Let's go. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. And he addresses the doctrine of salvation. The basic principles, the elementary doctrine, number one is the repentance from dead works. Now, for those who are Hebrews, they know about repentance from dead works, the law. And he's saying, hey, when we heard the gospel, we were told it's not the law that will save you. The law was never meant to save man, but to show him that his works are dead. Ever since Adam and Eve, their works are dead without Jesus. 
So this is number one. It's turning away from the dead works of the law, admitting that self-salvation is impossible. Maybe you're relying upon some work in your life, just like some of them were back then, saying, if I do this, God will be pleased. He will accept me. But that doesn't happen apart from his son. When we look at the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as we've said many times before, he's rich, young, and a ruler. He had three great things going for him. He just wanted to shore up his eternity. Jesus says, you know the commandments. The rich young ruler says, I have kept all of these from my youth. Do you understand when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, I've kept all of these from my youth? He's looking to the Messiah. He's looking to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, God in the flesh. And he's saying, I'm just as good as you, Jesus. Your whole thing of coming down here on earth and being perfect and fulfilling the law and being the only righteous one that can go to the cross, man, you don't need to do that for me because I've kept the commandments. Jesus knew better. He looked to his heart and said, okay, one thing you're lacking, go sell all that you have and follow me. And he wouldn't do it, which shows that he had other things more important than dying to himself and following Jesus. But he says from his youth, He's been following the commandments. But you know, the truth is he's been a sinner since birth. He didn't want to admit this, that he's failed miserably, just like everyone in this room. We've failed, big F, when it comes to our works before God. We don't have the heart of the psalmist if we believe that we've kept the commandments from our youth. Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Even if something as beautiful as bringing someone into the world, sin is involved because man, in his choice, rebelled against holy God in the very beginning. And all of us fall under that yoke of slavery because of their failing. And if any of us were in that position, we too would have failed. And we do fail daily. So the call is for repentance for those from your dead works. Repent of these works. John the Baptist and Jesus called for repentance. Matthew 3 and Mark 1, Luke 3, means to turn from your sin and trust in the work of Christ. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So repentance, it's found in Christ. And how much more? The best sacrifice ever given, the only pure, holy, acceptable sacrifice to forgive the sins of men forever was Jesus. Number two was a faith toward God. So we hear that just turning away from dead works accomplishes nothing. So saying, hey, we leave our old life, isn't that good enough? It's more than just repentance. You see, repentance is that of 
losing. Our faith is that of gaining. Repentance is losing our old self. And faith in Christ is gaining our new self in Christ. Repentance must be joined with faith. Repentance is a gift, just like grace is a gift. Isn't that something? That repentance is a gift. And yet there are some who say, I will not follow Jesus if I have to repent of my life. No, I want to hold on to my life. I embrace who I am. God created me. He created me like this. But he wants to make you a new creation, which calls for your repentance of all of your sin that you've done against a holy, righteous God. Repentance is a gift. See, we like to say that faith and grace are gifts. And yes, they are. Oh, we love grace. Let us hold on to grace. We need grace for all of our failings. Grace is a gift but so is repentance. You being able to change from what you once were to who Christ is making you to be is a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It's a gift given to you. Your repentance is a gift. And you say, hey, Brian, are you just making this up? Of course not. Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God grants us our repentance, and repentance and grace go together. It's a faith toward God. And for the Jews, it's not just holding to a national faith. And that would be a struggle for them. They say, hey, we're Jews. We've always been of the faith. Surely God would love us and accept us. That was not the case. They must have faith in Christ, not in their heritage. That's like something we say. We say, hey, are you a Christian? You go, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian my whole life. There's a problem with that statement, just like there's a problem with the Hebrews in the first century who say, hey, it's our heritage, our faith. You haven't been a Christian your whole life. That's the problem. You weren't born a Christian. And some say, hey, man, I've been in a church my whole life. You could have physically been born in the local church, and that doesn't make you a Christian, okay? And maybe that's somebody's testimony. We'd love to hear that. But that doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't. Coming in these walls doesn't establish you as a Christian. You weren't born a Christian. You weren't always a Christian. No, there was a time when repentance was required. You died to yourself and you rose up to follow Jesus. And if that hasn't happened, maybe you thought that because you've been raised in the church, you're a Christian. Today, you're hearing it. No, that's not the prerequisite. It's good that you're here, but you got to find faith in Christ, in Christ alone, dying to self. And so they're learning, hey, it's not just because of our heritage. So here we see soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Next, we see pneumatology. Pneuma, being spirit, means the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So they were instructed about the work of the Holy Spirit through two things, the instruction about washings and the laying on of hands. And as Jews, they were very informed about the instructions about washings, for there were purification washings for the priest and for the people at times. And also there was the laying on of hands of 
placing hands on the sacrifice, the sins of the people would go onto that animal. That animal was then slaughtered and from there was burned as a sacrifice, as a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. So they understand this, but then it's related to saying our sins were put on Christ. Christ, the pure sacrifice, and he went to the cross for our sins. And he was the one who was washed impure. He was the one that could go. And through him, we receive a washing. We receive the Holy Spirit. We become new and fresh. The filling of the Holy Spirit is not something apart from salvation. It is your salvation. Laying on of hands and parting the Holy Spirit to go forth. The Holy Spirit has been laid upon you. All of these things in the Old Testament we see in Hebrews 9, 9 and 10, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what is being said is you have the spirit. You have no need for all of these works anymore. That's the shadow. The reality is Christ. Here's the work of the Holy Spirit upon you. So you see salvation in the work of the Spirit. And again, we're going through this briefly. Hang in here with me. And then eschatology, the doctrine of end times, what many of us dare not tread. We don't, we don't even want to look into it. We don't even want to study it. But there's a thing called revelation. It's there for us to read as well. Just like James. We love doing Bible studies in James. James is good. Revelation, we don't know. So we stay away from revelation. But no, it's part of the Bible. And we understand that in the studying of the end times, one thing that we can be sure of, wherever you stand, and I guarantee you this, in a room this size, there are multiple thoughts and beliefs on how the end times will carry out. And being a Southern Baptist does not mean that we all hold that same view. But being Southern Baptist, and more importantly, being a follower of Jesus Christ, it means that we die, we rise in Christ, and there will come a time when Jesus comes back for us, and we will receive a true resurrection, and we will be with him throughout all of eternity. Amen? There we go. And so that's good. Yes, two of you can clap. All right, we get excited about this. Now, here's the deal. They've heard of these things. They've heard of them. And yet they're rejecting them. The resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. They, they heard of these things in the Old Testament, but it's the New Testament that takes on massive significance with Jesus Christ, their very center because Jesus is the resurrection. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus says, I don't just believe in a resurrection. I am the resurrection. You follow my lead. The second thing, Jesus is the judge for whom we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Christ is the judge. Christ came to save. Christ came to restore, make you new, and you will give judgment before Jesus. Everyone in this room will give judgment before Jesus. Know that that is a reality, just like it's a reality, that you will clock out of here around noon and you'll go eat lunch probably. The reality is that one day we will stand before Jesus Christ. He's the judge. 
And you can't be like the rich young ruler that comes and says, well, I lived a good life. I mean, I accepted everybody else. I mean, I was nice to people and I did good things. I mean, I didn't do like what the guy did in Charleston this week. I, I never did anything like that. Surely you must be pleased with me. I never went to that extent. And, and that's how people see righteousness. But you're going to Jesus, and if that's your defense, you're going to look to him and say, I never repented, never died to myself and rose up to be a new creation. I didn't think I, I, didn't think I needed that. But I'm here to tell you today, I am righteous enough to get into heaven. You're looking to the one who is righteous, and you're saying, so that means you weren't needed. And I don't think Jesus is going to say, you know what, you're right. All that I went through was for nothing. No. Depart from me. I never knew you. There's some of you in the room today, you may think that you're a Christian because you're here among the body. But there's no growth in your life. There has been no growth in your life. You have been stale, stagnant, no growth for years. Do you have the confidence in Christ that when you go to stand before him one day, that he will know you? That you are one of his, that's the warning here. That is the warning. And so with this, there is the doctrine of end times. And so they have heard the elementary principles and you're saying, this is good. Why don't they just camp out there? Because you grow in these things and your understanding of the fullness of Christ. So we look to verse three before we continue on. And he says, so therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And Paul's right there. And then pick up in verse three. And this we will do if God permits. Why is that verse there? Can we just wipe that out and say, well, hold on. I mean, if God permits, what do you mean if God permits? No, we cannot wipe that out. That is scripture. And this means that we can rest in God's sovereignty. There is rest when God permits us to move forward in growth. You know what that means to permit us to move forward? It means that we're true believers. God permits our continuing in the gospel. That may shake you. It may rock you. I have no no other way when we look at Scripture to say that. And we will not dare jump over verse 3 to remain comfortable today. God is sovereign. Man's responsible. If he is to move on, if God permits so, What we do, instead of saying, I don't like that, we embrace it because it's Scripture, and we rest in it. Rest in a God that is sovereign and powerful and in control of your salvation. You know why? That means you can't lose it. It means you can't lose it. If you think that you're responsible for gaining and maintaining your salvation, you're in error and you're not following the gospel. God is the one who holds you. And that is what we'll see here in this passage. So as we look at verse three, which leads us to verses four through six, who are those that have fallen away? Because this may scare you. Some have said, hey, see, there's Christians. They fall away. You can lose your salvation and and you walk away from the table stumbling and bumbling and you don't know what to say. I'll, I'll be back. Been there. But let us look because it's, it's one of three, I believe. It's one of three. And I hope you're taking notes on this and, and know that 
We will spend time mostly on number one today, but we will look at number three next week. Whole message devoted to it, but number one. Let's, let's read verses four through six again, so we'll be refreshed. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have t- shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to contempt. Some would say that apostasy is a, a Christian losing their salvation. No, I disagree. But number one, this point is actual. Some people see this as actually Christians that lose their salvation. Maybe you hold this belief. I hope that today, through the preaching of the gospel message, it will be shattered. But those who read this passage, they see they've tasted, they've been enlightened, they've shared the powers of the age to come, they've trusted in, And now they've fallen away. These have to be Christians. How can they not be with that verbiage? Well, here's the thing. If this is a Christian that loses his salvation, then that means that his salvation is not in the hands of God. Meaning, why would we have verse 3, if God permits Because if God permits, that means our salvation is in him. Our salvation is secure, as we'll see in following passages in just a minute. That means salvation rests in man. And if any of us today believe that salvation rests in man, you can be rest assured of this, you will lose your salvation. If your salvation rests in you. Say man can lose his salvation, well... If this passage says that man can lose his salvation, then this is another guarantee. He can never get it back. You can't have one without the other in this passage. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. What is impossible? to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to to contempt. Furthermore, that means that Jesus didn't die for all of their sin. Jesus only died for some of their sin or every sin except one. As I've heard some say, I'm the one who walked away from Jesus. Well, that means you committed a sin to walk away from Jesus. What is that sin? Christ died for all of our sin. When you put your faith and trust in him, you can be assured that every sin you commit has been paid for by the Savior. So that's to acknowledge that Jesus didn't die for every sin. And it contradicts many other scriptural passages and the grand narrative of the gospel, if you believe this. If you hold that this passage supports that you can lose your salvation. Which means that the writer, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, who is God, is at conflict with himself in other places where a writer inspired by the Holy Spirit, who is God, gives us plenty of passages to show and support the eternal security of the believer. Scripture does not contradict Scripture. You can't pit one verse against another 
and think that you're going to win some argument. They've got to fit together. All Scripture goes together. The inherency of Scripture. If you do not believe that, then you will be in turmoil. You cannot trust in the promises of God fully. So, one, it's actual. Number two, it's hypothetical. Some would look at this passage and say, well, what's, what's being said here is that if this were to happen, let's just say it does, but it can't happen, but if it were to happen, okay? So it's a hypothetical situation. But the problem with that is if it can't happen, why use it as a possibility? If you can't lose your salvation, then why use an illustration that says, but if you could lose your salvation, why do that? When it's not even a possibility. But then why follow it with verses 7 and 8 that talk about the two types of soil, which I believe strongly supports the third view that we're about to look at, but to say that there is a good field and a bad field. Good fruit, bad fruit. Those who truly received the gospel, those who look like it but didn't fully receive the gospel, which means they didn't receive the gospel. And so it could be hypothetical. I would think that If you had to choose between one and two, I would rather go with two, but I would much rather land on number three, which is apparent. Apparently what's happening here is that those that have fallen away were never born again, but looked like it for a little while. And you say, but all the trusting and tasting, and we're going to look at that next week, okay? We're going to come back to it. I'm not just jumping over this. We're going to spend plenty of time on it, but we have to heavily rely on verses seven and eight when we look at the soils which relates to what Jesus said as well about the soils in Mark. But the problem is that they have abandoned the faith. They're now enemies of Christ. They're saying that Christ is not the Messiah, that he's not God. They're rejecting Christ altogether, which is impossible for them to have salvation in that state. They are sinners separated from God. They looked every bit like a Christian. They sounded every bit like a Christian. But now there is this statement of saying Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life. It's impossible. What they're doing is they're standing back at the cross and saying, you're fake. You're lying. You're not true. They're crucifying him. That's what man does when he says that Jesus is not the only way to the Father. And so... The continuing maturing, resting in God is evidence that you are not a bad soil. That which is alive continues to grow. So having said that, know that we're going to come back to number three. What I want to do as we get to the end of our message here is to look at a few verses that refute number one, that actual Christians losing their salvation. Based on what we've already said and what I believe the text supports here, And I ask you to follow up this message that you do study yourself, that you may rest in the eternal security, the work of Christ. But with other passages of Scripture, that means they must all come together. Well, here's what we see in other passages, just a few. There's plenty more. God will finish what he started. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began will bring it to completion. God began the work. He'll complete the work. He carries it out. What he's finished or what he started, 
he will finish. He will not leave you hanging. He will not say, hey, I give you my grace. Repent, yes, and oh, that's how you're going to be? I'm going to take it back. And man has no authority. If he has been blood purchased because of the work of Christ, he can't go and say, you know what, I'm walking away from this. That means he never knew him. But God started. He will finish. He will bring it to completion. This is the hope that you and I have in salvation. Number two, next thing we see is that nothing in all of creation can separate us from Jesus. Not even you. Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. Paul's there. I think that's everything. will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the confidence that the early church needed when they were facing rulers and principalities and darkness and persecution to know that none of that is going to separate you from Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing separates us. Once you're his, you're always his. Nothing comes in between. Our salvation is his purpose for his glory. Yes, our salvation is for God's purpose. It's not for man's purpose. It's for God's purpose. We have to embrace this and love this and hold to this. And we see this as we look to Scripture, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So as we just saw in Philippians 1.6, what he starts, he will complete. And this being glorified means that we receive bodies at the resurrection, that bodies that will not fail him. Bodies that cannot get sick. Bodies that are incapable of doing any immorality. We have a new body, a perfect body, glorified for whom? God. For God's glory. Our salvation is for his purpose, for his glory. How good that is. God is in control. Born again means that faith remains. See, strong language, and Jesus uses this in John chapter 3, telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. Born again. Why, why must one be born again? Because when he was born, it wasn't good enough. You understand you have to be born again because you were born into sin? So you have to be born again to be separated apart from sin? And faith remains, First Peter 1, 4-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who guards our salvation? Church, God, 
You do not guard your salvation in maintaining it. God guards your salvation. You've been born again. This faith remains until the end, till the time when it's revealed in the last time. God guards our salvation. 2 Timothy 1.12, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. What are these gifts? What are these things that have been entrusted? Salvation. He'll guard it. If that's not enough, we continue on. Ephesians 4.30, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit comes into your life not to leave. He doesn't come in and out of the believer. He dwells within the believer and he seals you. That is your guarantee. And if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, there will be fruit. But this we know, that those that depart were never truly apart. Those that depart were never truly a part of the church. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, these being antichrist now. But they were of us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They went out because it's plain they were never apart. See, when we read back on Scripture, you've got to understand that in first century, just like today, when we look across the room, I cannot guarantee a person in this room salvation. I cannot. I can't do that. My hope in salvation is that I press on to the end, that the things that I say I believe, I will, I will carry out until the end, not for a working for salvation, but a working out my salvation. You say, well, that hurts my feelings that you can't tell me. You don't want to put your eternal security in my hands. You put it in the word of God and his promises. But as you press on, as you continue on, it is evidence. You say, how do I know that I'm a Christian? Do you love Jesus? Are you obeying his word? Are you sharing the gospel? Are these things rich to you? That's evidence because people who don't love Jesus don't love Jesus. Say, wow, Brian, that's deep and profound. Well, you know me, I'm not the deepest, but very simple. So what we see that those who looked apart and fell away were not Christians to begin with. They were never truly apart. They sounded like it. They looked like it. And I believe that's exactly what's supported here in Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6. What does that mean? You mean I can go through all of life, come into the church every day and still be lost? Yes, absolutely. You can know every hymn in the hymn book. You can know verse after verse. But if you're not persevering in the gospel, if you're not living it out, let that be the evidence. It should cause you to evaluate your life constantly. But here's how you know you trust fully in what Christ has done for you. You admit that, that what Christ did was everything and enough. What he did on the cross, it was finished. As Clint started today, it is finished, man. There's no more work to be done for your salvation except putting your trust in Him. 
And that is the grace of God. Do you believe it today? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe what Jesus did on the cross and that he rose from the grave and that your sins, the only way that you can stand before a holy God and not have to give an account for the ways that you blasphemed and sinned against God is because you've trusted fully that Jesus has paid for him on the cross. Do you trust fully in Jesus? Well, for those who do, you can be confident that God will not let go. John chapter 10, 27 through 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Do you hear this? Jesus has sheep. He knows them and his sheep follow him. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Do you hear that? Jesus has sheep, that being the church. He gives them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And I've heard people say, well, we can walk out of his hand. Where's the evidence? Based on the totality of the word. No. If you think you've walked out, you were never truly in with him in the first place. Scripture asserts again and again that the new life in Christ is eternal. What kind of eternity would that be which could be brought to an end in our own lifespan? That's not eternal. Jesus doesn't offer temporary salvation as long as you're good, folks. No, he knows that you're not good. He knows that I'm not good, but he is the only one who is good. As the rich young ruler came and he said, hey, good teacher. And Jesus tested him. He says, why do you call me good? The only way you would call me good is if you recognize who I truly am. You don't recognize who I truly am. There's only one who is good. That is Jesus. Do you trust in him? John 6, 40, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is certain. So today, maybe what has happened in you is that you have clearly heard the gospel, that life is only through Jesus. There is no other way. You believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Confession leads to salvation. And so with that, you believe that what he did on the cross was finished work, that you can rely fully on him. Repent of your sins before God and trust in Jesus today. You can do it right where you're seated. You can do it after the service. You can do it in the car when you drive home. This isn't the only four or five minutes that you can deal with this. But as you hear this, why delay? Trust in Christ. Maybe you've heard this message today and and your hope is that you have been prayed a prayer, that you've been baptized, but there's been no growth. No, no growth. No growth at all. And you say, but I prayed a prayer and I was baptized. Can I tell you something that's very dangerous within Southern Baptist life? And, And understand this is coming from somebody who's been raised Southern Baptist and loves being a Southern Baptist. I love being a follower of Christ first. But listen, it's that at one time we were so concerned with numbers and people getting baptized 
And that's what we cared about. And it was to the ego of men and women that many came up here and they prayed some shallow prayer and they got baptized and they didn't truly understand that they were dying to themselves and following Jesus. And we applauded that. And we said, our denomination is growing. Look at all of these numbers. And now we're, we're saddened because the denomination is shrinking. Could it be that the gospel message is going forth and that those who are leaving are those who are never truly a part of the gospel because they don't want to accept the gospel. They don't want to hear the gospel. Don't tell me that Jesus is the only way. Don't tell me I must repent. But that is what's required, and it is a gift. Today, are you following Jesus? How do you know you're following Jesus? Are you following him? Are you obeying his commands? Are you heeding his word? Are you trusting what he did for you on the cross? If you're in doubt of that, be sure of it today by placing faith and trust fully in him and follow him. I and other staff members will be in the back and have some pastors up front. You come talk to us. Don't, don't just let this pass by. You have questions, come talk to us. You take notes this week. You go back and study. We'll come back again next week and we'll look more at verses four through six. We're gonna put our due diligence into this. But understand the importance today that we are to press on to maturity, growing Christ. What has life has growth. Let's pray. Father, a sobering message today, a reminder. We need this constantly. We don't have false hopes in salvation. What we know is that for certain, we can trust fully in your plan that you have given us Christ. He is a gift. He is the only gift for salvation. I pray that this is clearly heard today. Father, may there be those in this room who truly repent that they die to their dead works and that they have faith in you the Holy Spirit would come to dwell inside of them, that they would move forward to live out the gospel until the end, knowing that you have not forgotten us. You know very well what's happening in this sin-depraved world, and you are going to make all things new. We put our faith and trust in you. We continue in the gospel. Lord, work in this time. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.